0: at deloitte.com slash us slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello, and welcome to Decoder.
1: I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Kayvon Bakepore, the Head of Consumer Product at Twitter, which means he's responsible for deciding what tools Twitter actually builds for people to express themselves. And Twitter's product is incredibly important. It is a flashpoint of interest and controversy for politicians and celebrities and regulators and regular people all around the world. It often seems like people don't know the difference between Twitter and real life. So whatever changes Twitter makes to that product have repercussions everywhere. Twitter recently announced that it's going to be building a lot of new things into its product. There's Twitter Spaces, which is a live audio feature very similar to the Red Hot Clubhouse app. There's Twitter Fleets, which look like Snap and Instagram Stories. Twitter just acquired Review, which is a newsletter product similar to Substack. And it also announced something called Super Follows, which will let people pay creators on Twitter for special content. It's a lot, especially after Twitter spent so long seemingly not adding any features at all. Kayvon and I talked a lot about what it took to reset the team towards growth, how he decides what to prioritize and what features to build, and what the timelines for success look like across all of those different products. Of course, we talked about the products themselves and how they will change the Twitter experience, especially super follows since adding paid content Seems like a huge change to Twitter. And enabling a creator revenue model on a social network has a lot of well-known challenges. We also talked about content moderation, of course. We spend a lot of time thinking about content moderation at the Verge. Kayvon's to you is that if you build the products correctly, you can decentralize moderation to users instead of only relying on AI. An approach that you'll hear him talk about in particular with audio in Twitter spaces. Okay. Kayvon Bakepore, head of consumer products at Twitter. Here we go. Kayvon Bakepore, you're the head of consumer products at Twitter.
2: Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. It's been a while since we chatted. I'm excited to to have you on the show. It's like almost two years. It was uh, October 2019. It was the last time, me, you, and Casey.
1: Yeah, it was me and Casey Newton. I think you had just sort of become the head of product at Twitter. You've now made it almost three years. That might be the longest anyone has been the head of product at Twitter. So congratulations.
2: I feel like I've I've been in the role long enough that people don't remind me every week how long it's been since I've been head of product. So
1: (laughs) I guess there's... There's a sign at Twitter HQ that was like days since last head of product. But you've been there a long time. The last time we spoke, we were talking about accelerating Twitter's product cadence, doing all this stuff. There was a pandemic, but just a couple of weeks ago, you had an analyst event, lots of product announcements coming out of Twitter. Walk me through just the highlights of that. And then I really wanna talk about how you decided to prioritize what to build and how you kind of accelerated the product roadmap because it feels like it's going a lot faster than it was before.
2: Yeah, so while we definitely, we've picked up the pace and we announced some new stuff at our analyst day and also kind of reminded folks and showed a sort of a longer preview of what they can expect. All of the stuff we announced kind of fall into high-level categories of work that have been focus areas for us for the last couple of years. So I think even when we chatted, you know, we had hot, we had a few high-level areas of, of our product strategy, product strategy that we are focused on. One is health, so how do we, you know, protect the health of the public conversation? The other is conversations. How do we incentivize people and create the tools and capabilities to inspire people to start and participate in conversations on the platform? Um, and the other is what we call interests. How do we connect people to the people and content that they're interested in? Sort of fundamentally the main reason why people have been coming to Twitter for the last 15 years, but really critical for us to build new, powerful ways for, for people to do that. So health conversations and interests have been kind of our like big rocks for the last two and a half years. We've been taking bigger and bigger swings in each of those areas. So at our Analyst Day event, we, we kind of went in depth on a few of them. Within interest, for example, Last year, we launched a product called Topics, which we got started very sort of nascent with, with our work there, but we've really accelerated. Today, there are 6,000 topics that people can, can follow. And it, it's very simple, right? Rather than just following people on Twitter, you can follow a specific topic. And Twitter does the work of recommending the best content or tweets about that topic, so you don't have to know exactly who to search for. So again, that we didn't release that at our Analyst Day event, we we just sort of gave an update on it and shared some of the substantial progress. So in Q3 of this uh, last year, we announced that there were 70 million people that have followed topics. And then just yesterday, we announced that there now are over 100 million people that have followed topics. So pretty pretty good clip of growth. And we're seeing really promising signs that topics is a really useful way for people to connect to their interests. A couple other things we announced at our Analyst Day event, one was uh, a product that we're really excited about right now called Spaces, which again, is is very connected to our work and conversations. Spaces is a new way for people to talk about what's happening on Twitter, except instead of using 140 characters or 280 characters or a video, you're using the real, your human voice to connect with other people and have real audio-based conversations. So new effort, but connected to a longstanding priority. Some newer things that we announced that people hadn't heard from us include super follows. So I'm assuming you might want to talk about this, but this this is one that we hadn't really talked to the, to the world about or, or being particularly transparent about until our Analyst Day event. And we're excited about that one because it's really starting to stitch together a bunch of the other capabilities we're, we're working on. So I won't go into too much depth until you ask me about it, but uh, that's probably the one of the newest things that we announced for the first time at Analyst Day. And then the rest of it was really just telling a cohesive story to the world around what is our strategy? Why is that our strategy? And what are some of the product investments we're working on that ladder into each of them? Yeah, I absolutely am going to ask you about Super Follows. But
1: let me try to recast the three areas of focus that you're describing. So you have health, which to me is basically just the overwhelming content moderation problem that every social platform faces. And you've got to build tools and have strategies there. You have conversations, which is you need to make a bunch of tools to let people create and actually make content for the platform as opposed to just consuming it. And then you have interest, which is find the stuff that other people made that you might like. Every social platform has that set of problems. I kind of want to take them in turn. A lot of the features, I think, you have described that are most interesting to me are in the how do you incentivize people to create media, right? And to me, that the great story of the internet is that we put a camera and microphone in everybody's hand. Everybody has become a filmmaker. Everybody has become a, a storyteller. Twitter is one of the best distribution networks for that kind of work. But I'm looking at something like Spaces, for example. We'll just start there. It's an interaction framework that you know, the Clubhouse exists. It looks a lot like Clubhouse. People are making that comparison very directly. Uh, Fleets is now at the top of my timeline. There is the wave of stories, products that hit Snapchat and Instagram. Fleets looks a lot like stories. How are you deciding which of those interaction paradigms are like fundamentals that you want to bring to Twitter as a fundamental and which ones are, oh, man, that's a great feature. We've got to get there first or fast follow to make sure that a different rival social graph doesn't form that takes our audience away?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. And contrary to popular belief might be, we try to never approach it from the standpoint of here's a capability, let's copy it. Like we try and approach everything from from first principles and really customer understanding. Actually, one of the things that Jack really emphasized when he, when he came back to the company was sort of morphing our product development process to respect the jobs to be done framework a lot more. I don't know how much you've heard about jobs to be done, but fundamentally it just comes down to imbuing customer understanding into the product development process. And so for us, all of the work we do starts from the from the standpoint of what are our customers trying to hire us for? What are they firing us for? And how do we build product solutions that that have those those dimensions in mind? So take something like Fleets for example. We didn't start it from the standpoint of like, let's copy stories. We started from the standpoint of like, why are people not tweeting? And it turns out that some of the reasons why they're not tweeting us, they don't feel safe. They don't feel safe because what they tweet is subject to public scrutiny, right? Tweets are on the public record, which is kind of terrifying. Anyone can respond to them. And they're such a, to the popularity contest of likes and retweets and impressions and all the sort of social mechanics that we've built in the product that actually work quite well for a certain purpose, but can work against you if you're just trying to have a conversation and, and feel intimidated by that. And so we sort of go through and enumerate all, all the reasons why someone might be hiring us or why someone might be firing us in the case of tweets. This is a very common observation we have. People, a lot of people are terrified to tweet. A lot of people don't use Twitter for the creation side at all. They're here to consume and unlocking that, finding like peeling the onion back and understanding the reasons is how we start period. And Fleets felt like one of many, but one product solution that can address some slice of that problem statement, right? It's it's ephemeral, it it takes away the public replies, it takes away all the engagements. And to your point, like there there happens to be a format for that that customers are familiar with. And so we won't be afraid of leveraging prior art in that sense, but I don't think like we would be flying blind if we just are like willy-nilly copying stuff. That's not how we're approaching it. With Spaces, it's interesting because you know, fundamentally, I think people for the last 15 years have been using Twitter to talk and to, hmm. to talk about their, like, it's just like so basic. But in a way, I think the rise of of these sort of audio, the audio renaissance that's happening right now is <laughs> is interesting because it's taking technology that has fundamentally existed for quite some time and sort of putting a user experience around it and a fidelity at, around it that allows people to engage in that same job of just having serendipitous conversations with people, but doing it in a way that is synchronous rather than asynchronous and, and, and powered by the human voice rather than text. And this is particularly a special and, and passionate area for me because it's not too in, it's not too different from how we were approaching Periscope. The, the interesting thing is that when we started Periscope, Like, our goal was to build a teleportation, the closest thing to teleportation, right? Like, see through someone else's eyes. What we found is that 99% of the usage is not, like, someone broadcasting what's happening on the streets of Istanbul during a protest. It's people hanging out and talking. And so, really sort of taking that to heart and building an experience within Twitter that can be a layer of fabric that lets people talk with their voice. That's how we're approaching it. There's some mechanics that we've been inspired from other other startups that are doing this. And then there's some things that we're we're making our own, right? Like this fundamentally like the way we build spaces in in our product that will that will allow it to shine is going to look and feel very different than how some other platform will, will will be able to tackle it. So it's that's that's therein lies the the challenge and the opportunity for for building a great product.
1: One of the things that has really struck me is this is a lot of new products, a lot of new challenges. What were the th- kind of the three things you had to do, rank them. What were the top three things that you had to do in your role as head of consumer product to get to this, this velocity of, of product development and feature announcement?
2: I mean, this won't be in any particular order, but um, when I joined the company, one of the first things that I felt was that there was a, a reticence and an uneasiness around taking big bets, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. It's hard to sort of pinpoint one. Certainly, churn in leadership is, is one, right? After a revolving door of, of heads of product, like people stop taking any product strategy particularly seriously <laughs> because it's like, okay, well, let's wait until that strategy changes. And so I think there's a little bit, while no one would say that explicitly, there is this reticence to commit to long-term speculative bets because it was rare for them to be able to be seen through. That's one that I think was somewhat ingrained in the culture, which is difficult. It's difficult for PMs, engineers, designers who really want to push and evolve the product to kind of come up against an organizational resistance that is not tuned to take big speculative bets. So that, that's one. Um, and, and really, I, unwinding that, I think, has been the biggest unlock that we've had as a company, where today... When we contemplate solving more ambitious customer problems, and in turn, you know, sort of postulating more ambitious product solutions, we don't get the no but as much. <laughs> Every once in a while, it's there's there's you know pessimism around like, oh, can we like pull that off? But like, we get way more of a yes and vibe, and a, and a willingness, and a and a patience for sort of terrifying ambitious bets. Whereas you know, three years ago it's like, you know, any idea you would come up with, there's just a lot of, a lot of pessimism around like, "Eh, you know, that's going to take a long time to build, which is true. We've got a lot of infrastructure debt to work through. And also like, oh, that'll never ship. That would never get approved. Customers will freak out, which by the way, sort of related to your question. One of the interesting things about Twitter, which is both a great thing and can be a, a challenging thing sometimes about working at Twitter is that, People use our product to love and hate on our product, <laughs> um, and I think it's one of the most amazing things about Twitter. Like we get the gift of feedback on a minute-by-minute basis, and that includes getting shit from our customers when we get it wrong, um, and that can make it very intimidating and, and scary for teams to build stuff because, like you know, God forbid, rest in peace, Twitter trends, and we've had a lot of a lot of launches and. With uh, you know, rest in peace, Twitter trending, which <laughs> which I think a few years ago was a, was something that would stop us from taking swings in the first place. In my opinion, like if we're not seeing rest in peace, Twitter trend a few times a year, like we're not taking big enough swings. And so, th- just as a team, shifting our mindset to get comfortable with that and sort of lean into it and embrace it has been a really important challenge for us to overcome. And we're not completely over the fence yet. It's amazing that customers are starting to notice that we're we're taking bigger swings, but I wouldn't say we're like completely out of the woods yet, but it's, it's an ongoing journey that we're really, really focused on. Aside from that, like hiring, right? Like any leader's job is to hire a great team. And like, we've really reshaped our leadership bench across not just product, but design and research and engineering. Like we have new leaders who are filled with the energy and passion of making Twitter live up to its potential. And we think that the potential is so much higher than what the product is today. I mean, and the product is obviously extremely important and plays a critical role in the world, but there's still so much potential. And I think it takes a, a collective team to have that sort of a rational passion to go through a lot of the, the slog that sometimes um, you have to go through to get there.
1: One of the things I always think about is leadership timelines. I'll give it a really silly example If you're a news writer at The Verge, your decision-making timeline is, like, 30 minutes, right? Like, some news happens, you write it, you put a headline on it, you get out in the world, you move on to the next thing, you're operating in in those increments. As I've moved up in my career, my decision-making timeline has extended into, like, a year, two years in some cases. You're describing, like, a two-year-plus process to kind of reboot a product culture. Is that the right timeline? Is that what we should always expect? Is that the time when you were expecting? Or, you know, did you have to make some changes along the way to, to get to where you are now?
2: I, I can't say I had much precision in terms of how much time I would expect it, to, it would take. You know, there's a lot that I thought I knew about the job going into the job, because I'd been at Twitter for three years and change prior to having this role, which, you know, gave me a lot of context in terms of our our strengths, our weaknesses, our opportunities. I still feel like I'm I'm learning on the job. I think my, I generally am an impatient person. I think it's one of my best and worst qualities. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I'm sort of constant, I try to be constantly dissatisfied about everything about our work and pace, but uh, while at the same time being able to tr- appreciate progress that we've made. And I'm really proud of how much we've morphed the culture, but I, I still think we have a lot, a lot to do. I um, I think in a lot of these areas, when you talk about speed, our ability to identify a problem we want to solve and actually ship a product solution, which I think is the ultimately like the right end-to-end timestamp to look at. You know, there's a lot more than just culture and process and people. It's also infrastructure and technology, like at our scale, we need to have really robust systems and a modern technology stack that allows us to build on. And this is this is an area where I think we're still really investing in. We're not out of the woods. Um, you saw if you I don't know how much of the analyst day you you watched, but this is like one of our top company objectives is investing in our own development velocity, We're making a huge multi-billion dollar commitment in leveraging public cloud solutions through AWS and GCP. And these are multi, this is like a its own multi-year journey that I think fundamentally will help us unlock even more velocity when you sort of combine it with the cultural changes and the uh, having the clarity of strategy of knowing what we actually want to build. My expectation of time horizon is constantly modulating in areas of culture and people. We need to move as quickly as possible. And in areas of execution where we have clarity in our strategy, like we're trying to think in weeks, not months or quarters. Um, and then in other areas of, of sort of broad scale, re-architecture, for lack of a better word, we do have to think in years. It's like we're we're thinking about juggling on-premise data centers with public cloud migrations, and these things require quarters, if not years, worth of long-term thinking. So this leads me into the
1: question that I ask uh, almost every executive who comes on the show. What is your decision-making
2: framework, and how has it evolved as you've had this role? Probably the biggest point of evolution for me has been knowing when not to be involved in a decision. It's something that I've, I've personally had to grow quite a bit on just because, you know, I've, I've run a lot of teams. I've started two companies and those companies have grown to be somewhat sizable, but but never at the scale that I'm operating now. And so it's it's always like any leader's challenge to figure out like when to be in the weeds and when to hire great people and defer decision-making to them. So that's probably the, been the biggest like umbrella of um, sort of personal growth and development for me as the team has gotten larger and as my scope has gotten larger. Ultimately, like the highest leverage thing I can do besides hiring is prioritization, like helping both me making decisions and also making sure our team is making decisions around what to focus on and what not to focus on. What we think is a high ROI bet versus what we think is a low ROI bet is ultimately the most impactful thing we can do because it's the thing we have the most control over, right? And so... That's still today the most important thing I can do and the most important form of impact I can have besides just hiring.
1: When ROI, I'm sure people listening know, but ROI is return on investment. I'm assuming by investment in in, in that framework, you mean we're going to spend time building something. What do you mean by return? Is it active users are going
2: up? Is it revenue is going up? Like, wh- What is the other
1: half of that equation for you?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So, and the, and the reason why this is particularly important for us, by the way, is as you or any other user of Twitter can attest, like there are far more ideas for how we can build and improve the product than we have time or people or resources to to actually work on it at any given point in time, which is a good problem to have, right? We have a service that, you know, almost 200 million people use every day. Like there's a lot of things we can do to improve it. Um, and so we have to be super selective with what we focus on. And to me, what ROI means is ultimately the the measure of success we look at to understand whether we're helping or hurting the service is growing daily active usage. That's like a very lagging indicator. Um, So internally, like we look at, ultimately we look at, are we solving customer problems? And we have specific metrics that tell us whether we're helping or hurting customer problems in specific dimensions. So in the health apparatus, that means... Any, do we have any number of metrics, whether it's the number of impressions on tweets that are deemed unhealthy or toxic, whether it's the amount of abuse reports that we're seeing on a daily basis. In other areas of the product, it could mean engagement or tweets created or spaces created, or, you know, it sort of just depends on the problem area. But when we think about ROI, it's, you know, the investment part is easy. The return part is basically how much impact are we having against the metrics that matter most? And how do we, and this is the hard part, how do we compare unlike metrics together? Because you know, having yay impact on some problem space in health, which is measured in the absence of malicious activity, is different than measuring yay um, impact in some feature that results in more daily active usage. So that is actually one of the one of the harder things, and we have a you know, we, we have a bunch of different approaches that we use, whether it's like having a portfolio balance or whether it's like <laughs> literally stack ranking and prioritizing on an objective basis rather than on a metric basis. Um, th- there's a bunch of different things we've tried and, and it's an evolving, it's an evolving art form, I would say. But ultimately, like that's that's the hard part of, of the job is figuring out what are the right priorities and how do we prioritize against them?
1: Two more management questions, and I'm definitely going to ask a million questions about the features you announced. Casey actually brought this up to me when I asked him if I had questions for you. It seems like your pace of development has actually sped up during the pandemic, which is not true for most companies that went fully remote and Twitter is fully remote. Is that, I mean, that seems remarkable. Is that perception accurate? And if so, how how did you manage that?
2: I do think our pace of development has sped up. I don't I think I'm trying to think about how the pandemic specifically could have impacted that. I think I think of it more, and this is obviously just through the lens of Twitter, not not comparing it to other other companies who've probably had their own their own formula here, but we have been on a multi-year journey to speed up our development. And so I would like to think that that's been mostly an up upward facing you know we've had our own hiccups, obviously, but it's been mostly like we're reaping the rewards of of that investment over the last few years in our process, our culture our hiring um, our infrastructure work and so the pandemic I would probably say it slowed that journey down for a little bit as everyone was adjusting to the new normal um I, I wouldn't say that it was like a net accelerant by any means. I mean people our team included but people even outside of Twitter have a lot on their minds and it's really stressful when you're trying to do your job with your kids at home without childcare. Like, you know, it's really, it's been a taxing time for everyone. So I don't think it was a net accelerant. What mm. we've done through the pandemic beyond just like continuing to accelerate, obviously the, the journey that we've been on is we did make some focusing decisions around like, hey, like these two projects that were kind of like in our periphery and like articulate as part of our long-term strategy. Like we need, like, this is the forefront now. And all this other shit's going to pause. We made a bunch of those decisions that I think helped narrow the aperture, which ac- accelerated you know, some projects and s- paused or slowed down other projects. And, and energy and momentum is infectious, right? Like as you see the company and other teams build quickly and you see customers noticing that, it inspires and motivates everyone else to want to live up to that. And so we've we've seen a bunch of that, I think, and we're seeing it right now with Spaces. Like Spaces, has, we love that our customers love it, but it, there's a real kind of like energy and movement internally at the company. I've been at Twitter for six years now, and I've never seen the level of energy and embrace around any singular project at Twitter ever in my time, like at the risk of hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that sort of thing, I th- we've had a few of those moments, you know, with these big, big projects, Topics being another one of them last year, that have... I think helped the team get through otherwise the intensity of what's going on in the world, especially when we see that the, the product continues to be used um, and, and be really instrumental for the world at a time where the world needs to communicate and learn from from others about what's happening. This is my last management question.
1: Then I, I really do want to start talking about spaces and uh, super follows. but. Twitter is important to the world. We just came through, obviously, this very contentious election. We came through an ex- insurrection at the, the Capitol. I saw it today House Republicans are demanding a record of every content moderation Twitter has ever made because they say you're censoring Americans. That level of focus in the culture, how do you manage against that? Because Twitter is very important to a very small but very powerful group of people, a very influential group of people. And it seems like as you create new ways to create, you bring more people onto the platform, you show them more things, that level of influence just goes up in a way that, you know, it it is possible that regulators around the world are basically going to make you stop doing things you want to do.
2: I think this aspect of Twitter, again, we were sort of talking about earlier, but this aspect of Twitter is one of the most unique things about it. it. And it's you sort of like working at Twitter, you ride the roller coaster of whatever is happening in the world. And you you feel all the highs, you feel all the lows. And there's an intensity to that that is really difficult sometimes, but it's also really powerful and inspiring. I mean, does your team did your team just like stop working
1: every time Trump tweeted? Like, I I just imagine that grinding you to the ha- to a halt all the time.
2: No, I think we we've gotten pretty good at being resilient enough that like a single tweet doesn't cause people (laughs) to stop working you know we have a lot of people on our policy and enforcement team that are really good at their jobs and they I, i have a lot of respect and admiration for the level of stress that they hold in their jobs but i think largely from a from a you know the engine of twitter does not grind to a halt when a single person tweets but it it can make it emotionally stressful to, to be <laughs> on a job. Like I'd be lying if I said that that wasn't true. But again, you feel all the highs and you feel all the lows. Like you take it when something really tragic happens in the world, or if someone does something really nefarious on the platform. It's hard to not take that personally as like something you're responsible for. Um, and I would like to think that that helps us helps motivate us to to do our best to build the product. But it, you know, it can it can also really suck sometimes. And in politics and regulation is just is one one very small slice of that, honestly. It's not just, it's not just that, but it certainly, it certainly plays into it.
1: We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the new products that Twitter recently announced.
0: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US Innovate.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. HIMSS knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need, discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. himscom dot com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com dot com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan.
1: We're back. One of the big questions I had about all of these new products is whether they're meant to bring in new users to make Twitter grow, or whether it's to make existing users use Twitter more. It's a complicated dynamic. You'll hear Kayvon answer. All right, let's talk about all these new features. One thing I would link in common to everything you've announced, you guys bought Review, which is a newsletter platform. You are doing super follows, which will let people pay for tweets from certain—do you call them creators? Do you call them tweeters? What's your preferred nomenclature?
2: I usually refer to them as creators. Obviously, that term is so broad, because creators can be journalists, creators can be musicians, creators can be professional publishers. We're still looking for a name that perhaps is is more all-encompassing, but creators works. And by the way, it's not just tweets, right? It's like super follows will let your biggest fans subscribe to you and get access to exclusive content, which could be tweets, could be DMs, it could be subscriber only spaces, it could be subscriber only newsletters, it could be subscriber only fleets. Like think of it as stitching together all of the current and new and upcoming forms of content that someone can create on the platform and really having this new subscriber layer um, and a new community essentially they can they can create that content for.
1: Subscriber-only fleets is a is a real phrase, and I'm I'm going to hold that close to my heart. Um, so you, you're building all these tools that l- basically let the most popular people on Twitter or people with a passionate following monetize that graph in different ways. Either you're going to kick over to review and you're going to charge people for a newsletter on review, which looks a lot like Substack. You're going to do subscriber-only fleets and people are just going to pay you directly. There's a million other ways to monetize That has been kind of the missing piece of the puzzle for most of the dominant platforms, right? I think uh, YouTube is the gold standard for creator platforms for the longest time because it had a built-out revenue model, and that was still mostly just AdSense and a cut of ad revenue. How are you thinking about, you know, you want a lot of people to use Twitter, you want them to find their interests, and now all these little corners of Twitter are going to be behind various kinds of paywalls. How are you thinking about that holistically? And how are you thinking about, you know, if the, the best people on Twitter or the most interesting people on Twitter have this incentive to keep people from seeing their stuff that if that affects the value of the service as a whole. So
2: how are you thinking about that balance? I don't think the incentive is exclusively to keep all content behind a paywall. I actually think that there will continue to be an incentive for creators to juggle, to their, which everyone's juggle and formula is going to be a little bit different, but juggle what content they create uh, and make available for all and what content they they create just for their subscribers. Like at the end of the day, there's a, you have a tremendous amount of incentive to create some form of content for all to see because that's how you build an audience. and then some percentage of your super fans will be, totally be willing to pay for content that is exclusive. But you already see this mechanic with newsletters, right? Some newsletters are free. some news- some issues or posts are are behind the paywall. and I think that similar mechanic will exist. And by the way, some, a lot of super fans, they just wanna support their favorite creators. Like you see this with Patreon. I think Patreon is one of the most interesting um, companies in this space, frankly. And it's not always about exclusivity. It's about recognition and patronage and just being able to support the creators who you appreciate the most and want to make sure they can sustain their craft. And so I think every creator will have their own uh, twist on this and will have their own sort of ratio of how they wanna mix their content. Uh, you know, maybe some creators will continue creating all their content publicly, but they just want to be able to have private DM conversations with their subscribers or, you know, once they go create their newsletter or their their video or release their merch or whatever publicly for all, they go have an audio conversation where only their subscribers can really talk about it. So I think there's so many permutations that we that we imagine that I, I don't think it's about taking the content that exists and putting it behind the paywall. I think that this new layer will incentivize a new layer of content to exist that doesn't actually exist today.
1: One of the hard problems here is Twitter is an app on a phone for most people. I I use desktop Twitter, but I'm guessing the vast majority of people that are interacting with Twitter are doing it with an app on iOS or Android. If you want to enable a payment inside of an app on those platforms, you have to give a cut to Apple or Google. I'm assuming Twitter is going to want a small slice of whatever payment because they're enabling the, the interaction you've probably got a payment processor in the mix that's a lot of cuts are you are you going to talk to apple and google about reducing the 30 percent cut for super follows because that's a lot for a creator to bear
2: yeah i mean it, it, we haven't we haven't announced or decided any of the specific numbers in terms of what the cuts are but one one important sort of piece of context and then we can, we can jam on the specific question. I'm not, I'm not dodging it. But the important piece of context here is like, we are not for, for super follows. Our goal is not for Twitter to make money. Our uh-huh. goal is for creators to make money. I think Twitter may incidentally participate in the transaction in some way to sort of cover our costs, but our goal isn't to maximize revenue. Like our goal, th- this work, just get going back into the management organizational stuff, ladders up into our conversations work. And the goal of the conversations work is to incentivize conversations, Mm incentivize people to create conversations. So it's just an important, subtle, but like very meaningful for us sort of aspect of our positioning that, you know, we'd love to put as much money into the creator's pocket as possible. We ultimately need to, you know, there are transaction costs, be it the platforms or otherwise that will need to be involved in that transaction. This is distinct, by the way, from other things we might do in the future, like a a Twitter subscription, you've you've heard us talk about this. And the goal of that is is very different. It's not about empowering creators necessarily. It's about, you know, providing features for power users that, you know, let them do things that they can't do with Twitter today. And so that's a subtly different goal. But on the creator side, yeah, I think the platforms and the app stores, be it Apple or Google, you know, they have these tried and true workflows and sort of frameworks for, for companies to, for developers to leverage. When it comes to facilitating sort of digital goods and app payments, and that comes with a cost, but it also comes with a lot of benefits that you know increase conversion and improve simplicity and decrease fraud. And so there are definitely pros and cons there. And but we're also not we're not tying this to one platform. Like ultimately, this will work on iOS, Android, web, Um, and so we have to have a a sort of framework and a workflow that allows all all of that to work cohesively well together.
1: But let me push on it a little bit. I'm a I'm a prolific tweeter. I say, okay, I've got a hundred thousand Twitter followers. I'm going to charge ten bucks a month. I convert X percentage of them to super followers. Now I'm making real money, right? I'm making a couple thousand dollars a month. Except I've got to give some amount back to Twitter. To even if you're not trying to make a profit, to, I've got to give some amount back to Twitter because that's how they're covering their cost. There's a payment processor in this mix somewhere that's gonna take maybe you're gonna be the payment processor. I'm I'm told Jack Dorsey owns a payments company. So there's a what? Maybe there's a good synergy there. Um, and then thirty percent of that ten dollars. I'm giving away three dollars to Apple and they've given me nothing as a creator, right? Like I get no value out of that. Maybe Twitter gets some value out of that, but me as a creator, I'm just giving away three of my ten dollars to a giant platform company.
2: Are you in a position to advocate for a lesser amount there? Um, I I, I mean, I, I, the way I would think of this in the context of super follows where, you know, we're, we're building this layer that didn't exist before. Like, even if that $10 comes down to $7 because of a 30% fee, that's still $7 more than you've been able to make on Twitter <laughs> than before. Um, so, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I... I would love for that to be $9 instead of $7. But at the end of the day, like that's not, that's not something that we have direct influence over on, on one, on one platform. So it's not a focus for us right now. Like our focus is to build the best possible experience that is good enough that people aren't going to think about the, the cut, you know, it's like they're, they're using this to have conversations and establish community and get recognition from their favorite creators. And, um, you know, I think if we do that right, then like, good things will happen. Do you think there's a way to build this
1: feature that gets around that rule? I don't, like, we're not in the business of getting around platform rules. Fair. Um, I mean, you are. You guys make a lot of platform rules. So I imagine you have an incentive to... I also,
2: I, like, listen, I, I get that there's a lot of controversy around this, and some of it is for, for good reason. I think that there's a lot of positive things about these... Um, Like this isn't just a highway tax. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of cost and effort involved in building these ecosystems that allow you to accept payments. And there's a lot of fraud and risk involved in the whole customer service flow around refunds. And like a a lot of that is taken off of your plate. Now, if you're a a bigger company that has a lot of those processes, then you don't want to pay someone else for that stuff. But, you know, we don't want to innovate around the payment flow. We want to innovate around letting creators make money from their audience. And so that's why like, this isn't a big thing for us. We, we'd rather minimize as much effort as we can around the table stakes of facilitating payments so that we can spend our energy on innovating for creators and, and for super fans of the creators.
1: Let's talk about Spaces for a sec. How long ago did you conceptualize
2: Spaces? I would like to say that the beginning of when we knew audio was special was we had this feature in Periscope which we called Hydra internally. I don't think we actually ever even called it that externally. But <laughs> basically, when you're live, you can pull in guests and have like a zero latency live conversation with them while everyone else watches. Casey has used this many times. I've been a guest in his his Hydra broadcast. Fundamentally, the infrastructure that powers that is literally like what Spaces is, just with a new skin. And I'm sort of kicking myself now, because when we released that feature like two and a half years ago, we were like, wow, this is way more interesting than any other Periscope broadcast because (laughs) it starts to become this multiplayer experience where the the broadcaster is having this interesting conversation with someone, whether it's a a friend or someone who dropped in as part of the community or whatever. And we all get to watch. And rather than being this one-way broadcast, now it's a a conversation that you're listening to, kind of like a podcast. And, you know, at the time we were just we were going through our own prioritization stuff, and live video was not a, not a focus. And so you know, we ended up deprecating or, or sun- putting a sunset plan together for Periscope. But we knew there was something interesting there. We just didn't move on it. Uh, fast forward to about a year ago, we really started investing in audio and thinking about how we can enable audio as a new form factor for conversation on Twitter and the same team that's driving spaces today really started um, focusing on that and the first uh, the first product that they built was what we call voice tweets which we we put in market late last year you know, on iOS you know lets you record your voice and tweet it out basically and around the same time they were thinking about the sort of conversational experience and you know this is when audio really started heating up and clubhouse was getting a lot of traction and so we had a long and windy road to refocus back on the sort of multi-person conversational format for audio but you know the team that's that's building spaces now has had their heart in this for quite some time and obviously hindsight is 2020 like <laughs> we've found much more customer success and impact and excitement around the multi-party experience than we did with the the voice tweets experience though we still see lots of really awesome use cases there but we've shifted all of our focus to the, um, you know, to spaces now. One of the things that strikes me about social apps
1: right at this second is on the one hand, TikTok is an explosive success and the tool it presents to the user is an extraordinarily powerful video editor. And the best TikToks I see are like really well-crafted videos that use a lot of elements and bring them together. And that is just a very, it, in its way, a very high production kind of storytelling. All the way on the other end of the spectrum, there's spaces and Clubhouse where I just show up. I've had one too many, and someone is going to let me talk to like
2: a thousand people, right? Where on the spectrum do you think Twitter needs to be? I think that this medium is much more close to the latter side of the spectrum than it is the former. Like, it's not, it's quite intentionally not a highly produced sort of editing environment. Uh, Anything live, I believe, is going to immediately put you on that side of the spectrum, That has pros and cons. But the one thing that's worth noting is while a lot of these audio conversations, a lot of the audio conversations that drive headlines and people talk about tend to be these really large ones where you have few speakers and many listeners, and that will happen. You know, when when we GA this product, like if Bill Gates and Elon Musk have a conversation in a space, like there's going to (laughs) be a lot of people listening and very few people speaking. But the 99% of... These spaces, and we've already seen this in our beta, are not that archetype. Um, that's an important archetype and an interesting one. Most are 10-person rooms, less of people just hanging out and talking about their interests, whatever it might be. The way you build a product experience for that use case is very different than the way you build a product experience for the massive space where there's an interview happening or a panel discussion and with a ton of listeners. Um, And we think both will happen on Twitter and and particularly for Twitter, like we know all of influencers across sports, entertainment, news, politics, like they're all on Twitter. So (laughs) like we want those spaces to happen, but we're we know that to build the, the best, most durable product experience here, real people need to be able to have fun and have like great, healthy discourse that happens through a medium like this with very different dynamics, right? You have a small room with single-digit number of people or dozens of people at most. And so that that's what I'm really excited about. And and frankly, that's something that we we kind of fucked up with, with Periscope, where we had the same dynamic. Like, both of those archetypes exist, but we didn't make any one of them particularly great. Like, it was... The experience kind of, like, broke down when there was a person... When there was a broadcast with 300,000 viewers, it just felt like chaos. And the experience felt a little bit lonely if you had... 10 people, uh, or if you had 30 followers, right? Like what are the odds you can get one of your 30 followers? Um, so that's, I think getting that right is really top of mind for us.
1: One of the challenges with spaces with all these social audio products is moderation. So when you open spaces right now, it tells you like, someone reports this, we're going to record it. But then that also is, there's no, there's no long tail audience there, right? Bill Gates and Elon Musk have a conversation on Twitter right now. You can see it happening. And then maybe if you missed it, you can go see it on Twitter. Maybe BuzzFeed will aggregate it. Someone will do something with it. And there's, like, a long tail of people getting to consume that. Spaces right now doesn't have recording. It doesn't have an archive. But you also need that stuff in order to moderate it well. Where's the push and pull of that stuff?
2: I think there's a couple layers of this. One, just as a baseline, we have our... Policy and enforcement apparatus that needs to be well integrated here and sort of up to snuff for the medium. So that's where you know we do record right now for purposes of of health health enforcement. There's a bunch of tools and automation we can build to make that as efficient and sophisticated as possible, given that there are gonna be many spaces live at any given point in time. That's very difficult. Um, You can't solve this problem alone with it, but it is important nevertheless. And the good news is like, we're not starting from scratch here, right? We built much of this for the last six years with live video. There are some nuances that are different about not having a video stream to accompany your enforcement techniques, but there's a lot of shared attributes of moderation here. The second layer, and, and I believe, the most important one is actually building n- native product features and native functionality imbued into the product that helps all of the actors within this conversation the host, the speakers, the delegated admins that the host might have, and the listeners be able to take part in optimizing for health. This sort of like decentralization, I think, is really really important, not as the sole measure of health enforcement, but ultimately, like a lot of a lot of what's going to keep these conversations safe is making sure the right people have the right control. The host should be able to decide who's in, who's out. The host should be able to empower some of their speakers or their listeners to be able to aid in the moderation process. Because if you're hosting a conversation with 20 people, let alone if you have 3,000 people in a, in a space, you're already juggling a lot of shit. Like You need, you need some backup. This is product functionality that can help help the conversation feel not overwhelming, help the conversation feel ultimately safe from unwanted interactions, and can feed into the sort of health enforcement apparatus as well. So that dimension is the one where I think there's a lot of innovation to be had. That's, that's the one where we're trying to lead from the forefront. Like a lot of in the next three weeks, a lot of the features that we're going to be adding fall into this category. And it's sort of in the spirit of scaling moderation. And again, as a base layer, we obviously need to do everything we can to have clear policies, the right policies, enforce against those policies. But <laughs> we also would be kidding ourselves if we thought we could be the police officers for all live audio conversations happening globally at any given point in time. Like we need, we need to be smarter than just that. Um, so we're we're um, we're approaching it as holistically as we can.
1: So this this was a great Periscope feature where you'd be watching a Periscope you'd see the comment stream float by and then you as a user, a comment would get flagged to you and would ask you if this comment needs to be moderated in some way. That makes sense when it's text. How would you build something like that for audio? Are you just going to ask people, is this speaker being rude?
2: Yeah. So that the um, we call that the jury moderation feature, which to your point, I think is arguably easier to do in text um, because you're scoping the deliberation that you're asking the jury to make to be a comment. (laughs) But by the way, that can be really hard sometimes because the context of when the comment was made really matters. And so we, we sort of learned the hard way that there's a lot required to get that right. I do believe a system like that can be effective if pointed at the right direction. I think one of the missing elements here, though, it's not just like you're not just asking a listener, hey, is this person rude? What's tricky about the health space is that what people deem as healthy or unhealthy is very subjective, right? Like you might be really bothered by something that I am not bothered by. And I think one of the challenges with Twitter is that who owns the space, using the term space loosely here, has been very amorphous in the past. And you've seen us actually try and make this way more intentional where like you own your conversational space. When you tweet something, you can hide replies to your tweet that will impact, it's not just like a local mute or a local block, it impacts what other people can see. You can now start tweets with conversation controls that prevent other people that you choose from not being able to reply. And likewise, a space, literal space in this case, is an even more sort of deterministic version of that, where like, it's your space, and you ought to be able to define the social norms of that space. And we ought to be able to build capabilities that help your community, whether that's speakers or listeners, be able to enforce against those social norms. What I just described is a lot easier to say than to do in the product, but i I believe that you know if this product takes off like we think it will, it actually provides a lot of really interesting potential for us to build the decentralized moderation capability that's frankly a lot harder to do with the other sort of parts of the scaffolding of the Twitter product. Now, add on top of that the challenges of Audio is a medium and synchronicity is a lot harder because there's, there's a time element, but you know, SpaceX can send shit to space and bring it down. Like these are solvable (laughs) problems. We just have to focus on them.
1: Sometimes I think content moderation might be harder than launching a rocket and landing it. I'll be honest with you. Um, do you have plans to let people broadcast their archive recordings? It just feels like if you're recording them for moderation purposes, there's a value there that can be extracted. Or are you thinking this is fundamentally an ephemeral product?
2: We're not religious about it being fundamentally ephemeral. We're starting that way because we think it's simpler and we, we need to focus. I think building recording, um, and I'll tell you why I put that in air quotes later, building recording the right way is tricky. It's not as simple as just, hey, it's here's a recording. I think most people don't want to listen to a 67-minute recorded conversation of like that the like serendip- serendipitously evolved based on who came in the room. Like we also learned that the hard way with Periscope. Like, <laughs> you know, we started ephemeral, well, it was actually not ephemeral and it, the recordings were 24 hours and then and then it became indefinite as a default. But most people do not want to play back a conversation unless it's a highly produced podcast like this one, like where the where the person who crafted it did so with the recording in mind. Yeah. Um I think it should be a choice like if, if you if you think that the conversation was worth playing back like you ought to be able to do that i i personally am a little bit more bullish on two things one obviously like the, the host should be able to save it and do whatever they want with it maybe maybe you know you you host a space you save it you then want to go edit it you should be able to do that um so that we will build that for sure i also think that the notion of letting the audience Pick sound bites and and share them as clips could be really, really powerful. Now, the challenge with that is you have a sort of a, a really challenging consent issue because you have the, the host's intent in mind. Like, what it, does the host want this conversation to be preserved or shared? There's the speakers who are not who are like a different actor than the host. Like their yeah. their consent is really important. That's really challenging to get right. It's one of the reasons why we haven't just, like, turned this on. We want to be thoughtful around how we do that and um, if we can build an experience that balances those those motivations and empowers the right people. But I think assuming that can be solved, just the, the way that Twitter works fundamentally, like, I think these sort of, like, a recording concept could be very powerful here. It could be very... Very easy way for people to catch the most important parts of a conversation they miss. They can drive tune-in conversations. I think it's actually a very powerful aspect of how Twitter already works. But we just need to be thoughtful around how we build it.
1: Do you think of Clubhouse as the competitor here? I mean, they have, there's a lot of heat on Clubhouse. They have kind of some different ideas about how that product works. Is, is social audio a, a market and you're going to take all the market share? or Are you feeling differently about
2: it? I don't think social audio is going to be winner-takes-all. Um I think there's going to be a lot of interesting startups and big companies that build this. I I am huge fans of the Clubhouse team. I'm inspired by what they've done. They're not going to be the only ones. Facebook has a playbook here. Like I'm sure they're already <laughs> working on something. Spotify is making big investments in in audio. I think I think we're going to see lots of people building on what is now a a mechanic that will Forever change how, how people communicate on, on digital platforms, which is a great thing. There's gonna be like great competition. I think for us, we're not we're like this is fundamentally Twitter. Like people have been coming to Twitter to talk about what's happening for 15 years. Like it's imperative that we build this into the product in a way that feels super natural and cohesive and allows people to have a new form factor in which they can talk about what's happening and find interesting conversations. So that that's our focus. We are excited by the energy and the ecosystem as well, and I think there will be lots of people who have different riffs on it.
1: That's a good place to take a break. When we come back, we're gonna talk about how all these new tools can change Twitter. While I was preparing for this episode, it occurred to me that what we think of as Twitter right now could be very different in six months or a year. Right now you open Twitter, you type into a text field, you send a tweet, but that might not be the primary focus for most people in the future. The way that you used to just upload a photo to your Instagram grid, but now you might do stories or a live or a reel. I wanted to talk about how Twitter is changing and how changing the entry type for most people, the thing that they make, could impact both the current and future experience of Twitter. All these new products you're building, one big theme here is you want really interesting people to use Twitter, a lot of them already are. You want them to have additional tools. Maybe that's a subscription product that they pay for. You want them to have a a range of monetization options that super follows. Maybe that's review. That just seems like a new revenue apparatus for Twitter, even if your goal isn't purely revenue. That's just a new business model for Twitter to be in, right? How are you thinking about bringing along the existing user base to use all those new tools and new opportunities versus who you want to go out and get cuz that it seems like it might be richer to go get some new people to use twitter in the new ways
2: yeah i think both of those pursuits are really interesting and valuable i think that with a lot of the capabilities that we're building it will inspire and motivate our existing customers to use them and 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 frankly like a lot of the the work that we've done in the last kind of year and a half has been has been sort of in that vein, right? Like we we talk to our customers, we try and understand how we can better serve them. And we we release these features that that motivate them to be able to use the features because it solves new problems for them. I think we're what we're disproportionately doing more of now that we that we haven't really taken on in the past is introducing use cases that can attract new customers. Like review is a good example of this, like Twitter. You could hack Twitter to be a good long-form publishing tool. Threads and tweet storms are kind of a good example of this, but largely, like, if you want to publish long-form content, you would go elsewhere. And so, you know, we are trying to be intentional around introducing those new use cases, um, trying to, you know, diversify the tools that our existing customers have that they can use, but also inspire new people to get value out of the distribution potential that they can get from Twitter. So it's it's sort of, it's not a... One or the other, it's definitely definitely both, and we've come from a place where we've been hyper focused on making the existing products we have work better, and we've now um you know we have some wind in our sales that we can sort of open the aperture a little bit and and start to explore use cases that have been further out of reach.
1: Well, I ask because you know i we spend a lot of time talking at policymakers and we we hear about big tech so much, and Twitter is always in that list, but t- Twitter is not as big as. Facebook has a playbook. They're going to spin up a team. They're going to copy five apps, the three that work, they'll launch in Brazil and like move on, right? Like they're big enough to just do that. Twitter is much smaller than these other companies from a user base perspective, from a revenue perspective. Is the goal, is just coming back to that ROI conversation, is it a better return to get more new people to use Twitter or to get more revenue interactions, whatever it is, from the existing user base more often?
2: I think this is gonna seem like a cop-out answer, but both, like we have almost 200 million people who use Twitter every single day and we need to make the product better for them. There are areas where we don't serve their needs. And I believe if we do serve their needs, like they will get more value out of Twitter. We have even more customers who use the product on a monthly basis that aren't daily users. And that like therein lies an opportunity to, you know, serve them better. And then on top of that, we have over 2 million people that are either brand new to Twitter or are returning to an account after not being here for 30 days or more. 2 million of them every single day come to our front step. That's a lot of people who are trying <laughs> to use Twitter that are, are new. Um, and so we can clearly be serving them better too. So that's why like when we started our analyst day presentation, like I, I said, we believe that Twitter can serve billions of people every single day. Like, we're very far from serving billions of people every single day. Yeah. But we genuinely think that the market of people who are interested in following what's happening and connecting with their interests is billions. It's everyone. Like, who isn't interested in that? So our job is to really um, close that gap and to to find the um, all the things, large and small, that can help make Twitter more valuable to, to customers.
1: I asked Adam Masseri uh, this when he was on. It was right after the election. It's a little bit more time has passed now, but... Obviously, Trump is banned from Twitter. Is he, he going to stay banned? <laughs>
2: I'm not the expert on this, but um, we he is banned from Twitter.
1: And then there's been a couple interesting moves towards decentralization from Twitter's perspective in content moderation and in the, the platform itself. So you launched Birdwatch, which is a community moderation system. How is that going?
2: It's super early days, but very promising early results. You know, we're we're just in pilot mode right now. It's U.S. uh, It's English only. Um, So I really want to emphasize, like, still lots more to learn, but um, really promising across a few different dimensions. One, we were very intentional around around making sure that the by the way, backing up Birdwatch is a decentralized moderation tool. So basically, a community of people can annotate tweets and enforce them either against our policies or against policies that we may not have. They can provide annotations around why tweets may be misleading and 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 explain you know why. What we've been really pleasantly surprised by is good faith actors, speed and quality of response. Like probably the thing that we were most uh, keen to learn is are people just gonna have one-liners like this is not correct? Or are they <laughs> gonna explain why something might be misleading? and i think that's been that we've been really pleasantly surprised by the quality and robustness of people's annotations and it's been it's just been very very promising as well as the speed at which they're annotating tweets despite the fact that this is a pilot that is only visible on a separate microsite so that you would think that there's actually not much incentive for people to be like quick to annotate these tweets so again lots to figure out here this is going to be a long this is not going to be an overnight product solution. But I think that the power of empowering a community to help aid and certainly addressing misleading information, let alone other policy areas within health, I think is very promising.
1: Annotating tweets that looks like labels, labels something you rolled out during the election. A lot of conversation back and forth over whether they're really effective. Do you you think they're really effective? They are a moderation product solution.
2: I honestly think that the jury is out. Um, I think that there are applications of labels that are effective. For example, one of our forms of labels also disables engagements. Um, So if a a tweet is particularly egregious and violates some of our policies, like we not only label it, but we disable engagements around it so that it cannot be amplified. And that is extremely powerful um, and is effective in sort of diminishing the visibility and the spread Without context, at least of that of that content, I think our other labels, like we're we're actively still learning from which applications of them are effective and which don't, which aren't. One aspect of of this that I think is is critical is through our research, we believe that people will trust label assessments more if it doesn't, or or, I should say, a hypothesis we have is that people (laughs) will trust these assessments more if it comes from a diverse community of voices rather than us as a singular social platform. And that's one of the hypotheses that we're really exploring with with Birdwatch. It's not Twitter saying this is misleading information. So it's a community of a jury of your peers that are saying this is misleading and here's here's the rationale for it.
1: If I made the comparison to Wikipedia, would that be directionally correct? Right. Like you're building a sort of Wikipedia back end of labels that people participate in.
2: I think that's a very apt analogy. It's We look to Wikipedia as a source of inspiration for how you can build a, a set of mechanics that can allow a community to thrive. Like Wikipedia also built the community, but they they more like built the mechanics that allow the community to thrive. There's a sort of like self-healing, self-corrective nature of a platform that is fundamentally open by virtue of being open is certainly opens itself to risk vectors, but can sort of self-heal and and allow you know an incredible corpus of knowledge to flourish, um, which is Wikipedia, I think the same challenges exist in a world where you have decentralized moderation, anyone can label a tweet, like a lot of things could go wrong there. And so our job is to build the right mechanics within Birdwatch and the right incentive systems that allow quality annotations to flourish and garbage to not flourish. Um, that's the hard part.
1: We've talked about a lot of new features. A lot of them are in the app, right? Spaces is iOS only. You started testing it on Android. Those are a lot of proprietary features. You're going to probably build some revenue stuff around it. But you also run TweetDeck. You also support third-party clients. There has been some work in the background of Twitter to decentralize the entire platform in some way. How
2: does that all play together? So a bunch of different things there. Um TweetDeck is a, another Twitter client that we own, and it's, it plays a very important role, I believe, in the, in the world. It's a, got a small but mighty user base of, of power users, and many of them the are The Verge newsroom runs on, on TweetDeck. Yep. Totally. And we haven't given TweetDeck a lot of love recently. That's about to change. Um, we've been working on a pretty big overhaul um, from the ground up of, of TweetDeck, and it's something that we're excited to, to share publicly um, sometime this year. So that's, you know, that's just like an example of a Twitter-owned and operated service that we will continue investing in. We also, over the last five years, you know, I think having given a lot of love to our developer ecosystem, a bunch of reasons for that, some missteps that we'd taken in the past, and then also sort of prioritization, um, we are also changing that. in the last year and a half we have really stepped up our both commitment and follow through on innovating around the API again, getting the API back to parity from our own internal APIs that we use to build functionality. <laughs> I think we've got a lot of trust to earn back with developers since we just, we've just we made a lot of mistakes in the past, but it's something that we're actively investing in. We hope we'll allow developers to build really awesome stuff around the Twitter ecosystem. Like it's one of the reasons why Twitter is where it is today is because of developers doing cool shit that we would have never thought to do. That's something that we are trying to do more of, not step away from. So more more to come on that as well.
1: But how do you balance it, like spaces, for example? Are you gonna let third-party clients access spaces?
2: We will at some point. It's not an active priority today, mm-hmm. I and mean, that's mostly just focus. Yeah. Um but yeah, I mean we did this with we did this with Periscope too. We opened up the producer API with which lets people use any RTMP stream and go live with it. And I expect that there could be lots of interesting use cases with spaces as well, not just on the creating a space side, but I think there's lots of really amazing developer tools I can imagine around managing a space, particularly, like, large spaces, like, I can imagine, like, whole control centers being built around (laughs) complex moderation capabilities that people get through a web dashboard that Twitter might not have in its native tools or analytics that help you understand how people are going in and out of your spaces and how long they're staying as speakers and what topics are driving the most tune in, when stuff gets shared. Like, I would love for us to build some of these things, but I know that developers who have expertise and passion in these areas will be able to do a better job, frankly. And so, um, like anything else we were talking about at the beginning, comes down to prioritization and kind of understanding people's needs and, and developers are one important cohort and we want to make sure we we build for their needs, but we're moving very quick right now. So it's not our like immediate focus, but we'll definitely get there.
1: That's always the balance, right? You're moving fast, it's hard to, to open up to developers. There has been some talk about decentralizing Twitter entirely, using it as a having it as a protocol.
2: There was just a white paper. Is that is that real? it is real you were talking about time horizons and time scales uh, earlier yeah. and you know jack as our fearless leader you know it, his job is to think in the longest possible time scale and this is an area that we are investing in and the way we're investing in it is a sort of sharing our our ambition and belief that blue sky which is what we're calling this uh, sort of ambition for a protocol layer is something that we do want to create and it's something that our our hope is that twitter could can become a client of in the future. Um, and we want to help sort of build the structure and apparatus and and hire the lead to, to be able to to create this protocol. There's still a lot of questions and work and it's it's super early. like this is not something that will be in place in the next year or two. Um, this is a long term super ambid- ambitious and speculative bet that it that is super interesting, but um, it's it's on a multi-year time frame. So we'll we'll
1: see. Last question. The, it's the easy one. More secrets of podcasting. What should people be looking at for next from Twitter?
2: Oh man, um, uh, people should look out for us to keep moving quickly. Keep trying things. It may not be the edit button tomorrow, but, you know, it's we, we are going to be taking swings. Oh, wait. That was the
1: actual last question. It's at the bottom of the list. Am I getting an edit button? My, my whole job. Is, wow. You just, like, totally screw the last you question. Went <laughs> you went there. You went. I didn't even open that door. You opened it and walked right through it. Well, what do you think? Uh, I think you're going to tease me with it for the rest of my life. And no, that's no, just what, the dance room. What,
2: what do you want is what I'm
3: asking.
1: I want to be able to fix typos on my tweets. And I also, I routinely tweet the wrong link. This is a common thing that I do, and I have to delete it and start over. So I would just like to be able to edit a tweet in a 60-second window.
2: Yeah. I think that's a very reasonable ask, and I, I think you should be able to do that at some point, for sure. Confirmed. Not confirmed, but, <laughs> but I think it's, a, it's like there's no philosophical reason for us not to do that. It's, it's purely just prioritization. But
1: yeah, and the the highest priority is trolling me personally constantly. It's great. Yes. Uh, You and Casey,
2: you're right up on my list of people (laughs) to troll.
1: That's tremendous. Well, Kayvon, that you gave us a little extra time here. I really appreciate it. We got to talk to you again soon, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Kayvon Bakepour for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at, at verge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Sophie Erickson, and Andrew Marino. It was edited and mixed by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.